3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is the 29th of September. Good morning. Wow. It's the future now. Yes, it is the future. Uh, if you're listening from last week, then um, incredible. Tell me how you do it. Um, yeah, we're coming up to the end of September. Um, I'm kind of excited because I know, well, I could be getting this wrong, but I think that the the official, like whoever monitors the pollen count, that starts in October. And that's what I want to know. I want to be able to check what the pollen count is before I go out so I know what strength of antihistamine to take. I did not take any today and it was a mistake. Mm, I think uh, I'm one of those blessed people who somehow doesn't get hay fever, but you never know what's around the corner. (laughs) I'm assuming that you're a couple of years younger than me and I would just like to tell you that I only developed... um, an intolerance is an intolerance, an allergy. It's not really an allergy, what I'm experiencing, but I've only become sensitive to it over the past few years. So there's always time. <laughs> Looks like there's only good things to come then. <laughs> exactly. And uh, speaking of good things, we have a big show for you as always. So starting off, we're going to hear Izzy Brown, who is speaking at the NARM Truth Not War rally, which was held outside the State Library on Sunday, the 18th of September on United Nations International Peace Day. And this Truth Not War rally was organized by a coalition of peace and social justice activists, including groups like Melbourne for Assange, Penn Melbourne, Anti-Orcus Vic and Extinction Rebellion Vic and Australia. And our thanks to Michaela for recording this audio. And then we'll be hearing from Zelda Grimshaw, who is a grassroots activist for Earth Rights, Human Rights, and is now a co-organizer of Disrupt Land Forces. Disrupt Land Forces is a project forged between October 2020 and June 2021 to resist the weapons industry and ongoing militarization in so-called Australia. As part of 3CR's daily coverage of anti-militarization efforts this week, Zelda joins us to speak about Disrupt Land Forces' upcoming action responding to the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. Then we will be joined by Ruth D'Souza, a a health researcher, clinician, nursing educator at RMIT University and podcast creator of Birthing and Justice. She has professional expertise in diverse areas from cultural safety, maternity, migration, tech, social inclusion and mental health and much more. She joins us today to speak on research co-authored with Dr. Sukmani Korana and PhD candidate Bavia Chitranchi about the experiences of six cisgender South Asian Australian women who gave birth during the COVID-19 pandemic. Awesome. I'm so glad that we've managed to grab Ruth so early in the morning as well. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, last but as certainly not least, we are joined by Professor Gary Foley, who joins us to speak about the upcoming national cinema release of the fully restored documentary Ningla Anna. 
Ningla Anna is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, which celebrated its 50th year of continued occupation and resistance this year. Uh, the documentary is the only film shot inside the embassy up close and personal with the people who established it. And it's going to be screening at Cinema Nova in Carlton this coming Friday, the 30th of September, which I think is already sold out, um, as well as Saturday, the 1st of October and Sunday, the 2nd of October. Um, and you can find details on the Cinema Nova website and links will be in our show notes. Uh, there will also be special panels on Friday with Professor Gary Foley, Lydia Thorpe and Tony Birch. And on Sunday with Professor Gary Foley, R- Rula Kelly Mansell and Rachel Maza. So super exciting and um Really hope that people can get along to see it. I think, um, you know, for people that have already uh, had had the opportunity to see the the version before it's been restored, it's already like an absolute force uh, to be reckoned with. And I think, um, you know, watching it in its 50th anniversary year um, is a real renewed call to action. I mean, the the embassy has has stood strong as a site of indigenous resistance and sovereignty um, for 50 years, and I think um, is not just a symbol of radical action, but really um, something that calls everyone who's living on stolen land to commit to engaging in that action for Indigenous land rights. Um, So we might uh, jump into a community service announcement before we head to our headlines. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs, and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of September. Listeners, please be advised these headlines contain mention of a First Nations person who has died. The inquiry into the killing of Kumanjai Walker at the hands of Zachary Rolfe has continued into its fourth week, with the court hearing that police deployed to Yundamu breached that police deployed to Yundamu breached operational plans by patrolling the community with AR-15 assault rifles and searching homes. The Yundamu community were also deliberately deceived by a senior police officer on the night of the shooting when he arranged for a Royal Flying Doctor aircraft to be brought in to evacuate police from the area, with the view to masquerade the plane as medical evacuation for Mr Walker. The court also heard statements from Assistant Commissioner Worst about a gathering at the house of Constable Rolfe two days after Mr Walker was killed. The gathering included Rolfe's patrol group, who were at the scene of the shooting. When interviewed, the Assistant Commissioner said the gathering had the potential to contaminate the version of events that Constable Rolfe gave at trial.
and that a gathering like that contravened standard orders that separate police officers involved in an investigation. Also in the news headlines this week, cashless debit cards will be abolished and replaced with a voluntary scheme after the Senate has passed legislation to cut mandatory enrollment in uh, the cashless debit card program across the country. More than 17,000 people living in trial sites will soon come off the cashless debit card, which quarantined up to 80% of a welfare recipient's income. The protracted trial of the cards ran for six years, cost $179 million, and resulted in no adequate evidence of positive impact or support. Advocates have long argued that the cards are punitive, humiliating, and ineffective. With this legislation set to pass the House and become law, Uh, Many advocates and some independent senators are urging for the government to abolish all income management measures and are seeking a more adequate transition plan. In other news, a new report released by the Australian Council of Social Services shows that people on income support are bearing the brunt of surging cost of living. Inflation is having a devastating impact for people on income support, with more than 60% of people eating less or reporting difficulty getting medicine or care, and more than 96% of people in rental stress. A cost says JobSeeker and other income support payments are falling behind the cost of living, and that almost all respondents to their surveys indicated their inability to cover the cost of living has harmed their physical and mental health. And finally in headlines, in a groundbreaking decision this week, the United Nations Human Rights Committee found that the Australian government has violated the rights of First Nations Torres Strait Islanders by failing to adequately protect them against the impacts of climate change. This is the first legal action of its kind, with this committee finding that Australia failed to implement an adaptation program to ensure the long-term habitability of the islands. Changes in weather patterns and severe flooding have harmed First Nations Islanders' livelihoods, culture and way of life. The ruling, which dictates Australia should pay adequate compensation to the claimants and secure the community's, quote, continued safe existence, end quote, on the islands, also paves the way for legal action and compensation claims by other climate-affected people around the world. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of September, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Is there anything else you wanted to jump in with before we wrap up the headlines? Um... No, I think, I mean, those were some huge headlines. This is true. Yeah, all important stuff. Yeah, I might um, quickly make a little addendum to the cashless debit card stuff. Listeners who've been um, listening to the show for a while know that I'm involved with the Accountable Income Management Network, um, and we've been pushing back against the cashless debit card for some time. And while it is really heartening to see uh, you know, that legislation's being passed to bring forward the end of this scheme, which is... um, which is already legislated to end on the 31st of December this year. Uh, there are ongoing concerns about, um, you know, a sort of bipartisan agreement that uh, income management is a legitimate policy premise in the first place. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens, considering that um, with the end of the cashless debit card as a, a sort of branded program, there is an enhanced income management scheme that is now uh, being legislated for uh, across a variety of communities, uh, primarily the Northern Territory. So we're going to see people in the Northern Territory go 
back from the cashless debit card onto the basics card and then onto this enhanced income management scheme um, while people in other cashless debit card sites uh, who didn't go from, you know, income management onto it but went, you know, straight from just having their payments to then having their payments quarantined uh, will now be free free to, to spend their um, Social Security income the, the way that they want. And also adding on to that with the ACOS headline and the cost of living, um, really so much of these concerns just come down to the fact that people don't have enough to live. Um, you know, uh, people are being... Uh, criticized and uh, punished for not appropriately managing their social security income when in reality, you know, it's people choosing between paying rent and eating. Uh, there's, it, it is just appalling, the, the sort of cost of living crisis. And uh, just want to remind listeners that poverty is a political choice. So uh, we can always change that. And I really hope that, you know, some groundswell mobilization will cause that change to happen. Yeah, and I just remembered, I think I should make it a habit to complain about Centrelink every week. <laughs> but, yeah, it's really, it's hard enough being on Centrelink at the moment and my solidarity goes out to people who are also on income management because, quite frankly, it's impossible either way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got to keep up the good fight. Uh, these things will not go away on their own. Um, and that's why you're listening to Radical Radio, where we actually platform the voices of folks who are, uh, you know, directly impacted by these issues and working to make change. So you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Ana is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I thought we might head into a little track before we jump into our first segment. So this is You, Me and the Sky by Big Sand and Tia Gosselow.
another image blue Got no plans, loose and tense Just another day on the hot dry sand Can't you think it through? Me and you, set up for the line with the image blue Got no plans, loose and tense Just another day on the hot dry sand We just heard You, Me and the Sky by Big Sand and Tia Gostolo. And next up, we'll be hearing from Izzy Brown speaking at the NAM Truth Not War rally, which was held outside State Library on Sunday the 18th of September, United Nations International Peace Day. The Truth Not War rally was organised by a coalition of peace and social justice activists, including Melbourne for Assange, Penn Melbourne, Anti-Orcus Vic and Extinction Rebellion Vic and Oz. Our thanks to Michaela for recording this audio. You're listening to 3CR. So it is lies that start wars and have brought the world to the brink of climate devastation. It is truth and acting on truth that can save us. Hello, my name is Amber Petty and I have the privilege to be your MC today. Our theme for this UN Peace Day rally is Truth, Not War. Today we celebrate Melbourne's long-standing tradition for, of rallying for peace, opposing nuclear weapons and arms build-up, respecting and protecting our environment and showing resolve in protecting peacemakers like WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. Please put your hands together again for Ben Smith who has been entertaining us with his beautiful music. Thank you, Ben. We're going to hear lots more music from Ben um, uh, in and around our very inspiring speakers that we have here today. So please feel free, all of you, to take photos. And if you're on social media, it would really help if you can share them with the hashtag, hashtag TruthNotWar and hashtag FreeAssangeNow. So I want to ask you all, What in your mind was the trigger that changed public opinion for wars in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan and any other wars? What public outrage came just before the end of apartheid in South Africa and the release of political prisoners such as Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr.? It was public rallies like this one today. It was protests. It was civil disobedience. Did you know it's not illegal to write on public footpaths with chalk like we have done here and around here today? It is also not illegal to tie a yellow ribbon on a public tree or pole on a footpath. So, we have a team of people who have been doing a lot of that down Swanston Street today and in Collins Street, where we're going to be marching after we finish today. Around Australia, supporters of Julian Assange's have been visiting their local politicians' um, offices and tying yellow ribbons to symbolise bring Assange home and chalking the footpath outside with messages such as hashtag free Julian Assange, hashtag free press, hashtag bring Assange home and hashtag truth not war. 
So if you're in the mood for some peaceful civil disobedience, all you need is a bucket of chalk, and we've got some around, and we're very generous, and some yellow ribbon, and head to your local MP's office. So that's something you can do today, or in the preceding weeks. So next up, we've got someone very special I'd like you to meet. Her name is Izzy Brown. Izzy is a rapper from political hip-hop crew Combat Wombat. She ventures into... Yes, woo! She ventures into spoken word, music, film and theatre production and has dedicated her life to creative activism. Izzy is the founder of the United Struggle Project and closely involved with Wage Peace, West Papa and anti-nuclear campaigns. Izzy is also well known for her art-inspired activism and activism-inspired art. Please welcome, wherever she is, I know she was here before, Izzy. Oh, there you are. Hello, hello. Greetings all. Um, I just want to acknowledge we're on the stolen land of the Rundry people and uh, sovereignty never ceded. The fight continues. And, yeah, it's a real honour to be here with all of you today, standing strong for truth and justice and, you know, all the things that matter. And I was asked to come on behalf of Wage Peace. Um, that is a crew that's organising an event coming up real soon called Disrupt Land Forces. And I guess when we're talking about truth and we're talking about war and we're talking about why these wars are happening and who's profiting from these wars, we've got to look at, we look at who's making the money, who's coming out in the end. You know, everyone else is losing. People are dying. Land is being destroyed. But there's some people sitting pretty making a whole lot of cash. And those people are the oil companies and the arms dealing corporations. And those people are right here amongst us. Just up the road in Bendigo, they're making armoured vehicles that they're sending to West Papua to use against civilians. They're also making the bullets just down there in Benalla. The same bullets that were used to kill Kumunjay Walker in the Northern Territory. The people that are making the money from these wars, the people that are profiting from these wars, are the ones that are right here in Melbourne, in Victoria, and also the ones that are going to be putting all their stuff on display up in Brisbane um, next month. So from the 1st to the 7th of October, there's a big arms fair called Land Forces where they're going to be showing off all the latest military equipment. Now, these are the people that are profiteering from these lies. These are the people that are profiteering from death. And it's up to us, all of us here, to stand in front of those tanks, to stand in front of those factories where they're making the bullets and they're making the guns and they're making the vehicles that are going to be mowing people down in other countries. It's happening here. And it's our responsibility to stop that. And it may seem like, you know, we think these people are like in some, you know, fancy mansion far away and we'll never come across them or we'll never see them. Well, they're not. They're our neighbours. One of them is my father, you know. These people are making money from death and we have the ability to get in their way and disrupt them. So that's what Disrupt Land Force is about. It's about disrupting the people that are making the money and disrupting the bullets and the guns and the tanks and the machinery before it gets to the places where it's going to harm and hurt people. So if you can get up to Brisbane, make sure you do because it's going to be a festival of resistance. We're using direct action, we're using creative resistance, we're using music, we're using 
you know, front line, kind of, you know, whatever it takes, lock on, whatever it is to, to yeah, try and stop those tanks entering the building and also disrupting that event to let the arms dealers and the people profiting from war know that we're here and we're serious. And if you can't make it up, there's a lot of things that can happen here in Victoria as well. So, yeah, this is where they're making the stuff. This is where they're making the stuff that is directly going to be, you know, in Indonesia, in Yemen, you know, in uh, everywhere. They're sending their stuff everywhere. It's prolific. Companies like Talus, Boeing, Neuer, so many. So, yeah, we can take direct action here and stop the process before it starts. Stop these things before they start killing people with them. And um, we can do that by putting our bodies on the line. And that's something, you know, we can all do. And here, you know, it's fairly unlikely they're going to run us over with a tank or shoot us in the head. Maybe, but, you know, fairly unlikely. So we've got to use that privilege the best way we can before they actually use that equipment to do that to somebody. So... I would be a human shield against the bombs that they wield. Walk through a minefield with a child of Iraq. Turn and face my own empire, would you kill me with? Friendly fire, would it be an international incident or just a fatal accident? Perhaps a dent that meant you'd think about the innocent. Would it follow me home like Gulf War Syndrome? Do you dust blowing straight into the lungs of a world unfurled into war, torn, forlorn faces at the fate of arms races? If I was the general of the highest rank, give me a gun, give me a tank, it's stank of blood, mine and yours, the young, the poor, and broken laws. If I had a pot, I'd melt the lot, compost all the bodies to rot, then recreate an organic state. Modern metal as spade and rake. So would you send me to fight? Pat me on the back, say it's going to be all right. Tell me who we're fighting for. America's chance to up the score. War flashbacks of 91, watching black gold run at gunpoint. Fun-filled pockets of a few well-to-do ungentlemen. At it again, signing away life at the flick of a pen as politicians lie but never down to die. Do the soldiers ever ask them why? Well, maybe in the desert dust might lose their faith and trust in the leaders that sent them just like pawns on a chessboard thrust into the killing fields. Why must there be no justice? Just us, just us, just us. See what disrupt land forces. Very cool, Izzy. Thank you very, very much. I just want to thank all today's speakers who have been amazing and enlightening to me and I'm sure many of you as well. And thank you everyone who has either come here purposely or who stopped to take the time to listen to all of our speakers and to hear what we've got to say. Um, we also want to thank 3CR uh, Radio for printing our flyers for today's rally. Um, thank you, 3CR, and also to all of the, the wonderful musicians we've had. Um, but as I said, our biggest thank you actually goes to every, everyone that's here. Thank you for your time, your generosity, and your spirit. Thanks for being part of making the world a better place. Thanks for standing up and speaking up for truth, not war. So thank you again, everybody here today, and speaking out for truth, not war, free Julian Assange. Thank you, everyone, and thanks, kids, too. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. 
inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Izzy Brown speaking and performing at the NARM Truth Not War rally, which was held outside the State Library on Sunday, the 18th of September, United Nations International Peace Day. And that rally was organized by a coalition of peace and social justice activists, including Melbourne for Assange, Penn Melbourne, Anti-Orcus Vic, and Extinction Rebellion Vic in Australia. And once again, our thanks to Michaela for recording that audio. We're going to head into another track now. This is Doing It Different by Arona Mane, Shantan Wantan, Ichiban, and Dancing Water. We just heard Doing It Different by Arona Main, Dancing Water and Shantan Wantan Ichiban. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. 
Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralised, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to Land Forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. I don't know if anybody just had like the wildest flashback listening to the track that was used, um, in that, in that CSA. Um, maybe I'm revealing my age a bit here. Anyway, we might head into another track. This is Sweet Disposition, a cover of Sweet Disposition by Bajara, Nairi and Greta Ray. Whoops. If I can get my phone to work.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM Thursday Breakfast and we just heard the beautiful cover of Sweet Disposition by Bujara, Neri and Greta Ray. Yeah, I just want to say the the voice contained in that teen, Bujara, is just I I don't even I don't understand. He's incredible. I just um yeah, uh if you if you know me, uh and probably most of you don't, um I'm not like a big uh I don't know, this this makes me sound like a real ding dong, but I'm like I'm not like a big uh music with vocals kind of guy. But no, I think um every every time I hear like Bajara and also Nairi, I'm just like oh, maybe this is for me. Maybe this is for me. Anyway, that's just like a little window into my mind palace. You're they, listening to so, no, go ahead. They get at a place that that other music simply can't for you, Priya. Exactly. They they scratch a little itch I didn't know that I had. I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Um, you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard it on the news about this fascist proof thing? Evil men with racist views spreading all across the land. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR, 855 AM, digital and 3cr.org.au. Hi, I'm Sophie from Braemar College, basis of The Tangents. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, supporting young local artists. 
855 on your AM dial, digital and online at 3cr.org.au. And we're back on 3CR 855 AM, and Leela's going to take us into the next interview. Yeah, so next up, I'm looking forward to speaking to Zelda Grimshaw. So since her teens, Zelda has been a grassroots activist for earth rights, human rights, and is now a co-organiser of Disrupt Land Forces. Disrupt Land Forces is a project forged between October 2020 and June 2021 to resist the weapons industry and ongoing militarisation in so-called Australia. As part of 3CR's daily coverage of anti-militarisation efforts this week, Zelda joins us to speak about Disrupt Land Force's upcoming action responding to the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere, which will be held in Mianjin, Brisbane this October. Today, we will be discussing intersectional relationships between patriarchy, colonialism and militarised harm and the ways that non-violence and radical respect can strengthen our resistance. Zelda, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be on 3CR. I wanted to start by asking when and where Disrupt Land Forces was cultivated and how did it form into the festival of resistance that it is today? Wage Peace is the organisation that has sort of dreamt up this idea. Um, we've been around for a few years targeting weapons companies in Australia, resisting militarisation and um, focused, very focused, I guess, on sovereignty, land back, um, dispossession and you know, the militarised harm that has occurred here on this continent. Um, and also we have a strong solidarity focus with West Papuans. So when we were thinking about kind of upping the ante with our anti-militarist campaign, um, we had a look at Land Forces, which is, as you mentioned, the largest um, weapons fair in the Southern Hemisphere. It happens in Brisbane. Um, which is where we have you know great community, and it's where the weapons dealers, like the the manufacturers, come together with trade delegations and government ministers and do the deals that end up causing the harm in our communities, whether on this continent or um, further afield in in West Papua, in the Philippines, um, in in Palestine. So we thought this is actually a fantastic opportunity for activism because normally we can't access, you know, the the head honchos of arms companies. We can't access, you know, defence ministers of a whole lot of different nations. And here they all are in one place at one time. And it's a place that is um, a real stronghold of peace activism um, on this continent and has been for a long time. So we thought, yeah, Let's do it. Let's resist the unfair. Mm, I think it's really important that, you know, we expose what's going on um, in, yeah, so Australia's weapon trade, I guess, leading on from that, Australians, Australia's weapon trade is a pretty covert profiteering operation and Land Forces, the Expo, is a good example of that. Um, it often eludes public scrutiny under the guise of national security laws. I wanted to ask, does the public 
have access to transparent, accurate and detailed information on our national defence budget? And where can we kind of educate ourselves a bit better or learn more about how exactly our taxpayers' dollars fund war? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the first part of that, the second part of that question first, mm-hmm. rather. Um, Michael West's um, news outlet has done a lot of research on exactly who is funding, like who is paying for weapons and who's making what and who's doing which kinds of deals. Um, there's a really busy revolving door between politics and weapons, the weapons industry Mm. in Australia. Like, it's as bad as the fossil fuel sector, maybe even worse. Um, And in Australia, so so Michael West's um, site is a great um, go-to to get informed about it. Um, Declassified Australia is another great site to look at for that information as well as our own website, so that's wagepeaceau.org and disruptlandforces.org. There is no legislation in Australia that requires um, military sales to be um, publicly available, so they are able to hide a lot of what they do. Um, What we know, on the other hand, is that several years ago, Malcolm Turnbull announced that he wanted Australia to be in the world's top 10 weapons exporters. So they're really looking to expand the weapons industry here. And ScoMo then committed an additional $270 billion to bolstering the weapons manufacturing sector. So this is not even like money that's going to our army. This is money going directly into the pockets of private corporations who are making weapons, which will then be used against us and yeah. people like us. It's really it's sickening to hear that, to be quite honest. Um, and we'll include the resources that you mentioned in our show notes. Um, so next up, I wanted to ask a bit about, like, I guess the background of or the philosophy behind Disrupt Land Forces. So Disrupt Land Forces is a campaign that's described as intersectional. Could you speak to the integral relationships between militarised harm, colonialism and patriarchy? And maybe you could explain to us a little bit about why it's so important to recognise the ways in which these systems actually connect when it comes to militarised harm. Yeah, look, the three sort of oppressive systems that you've named there, so patriarchy, colonialism and militarism, are really the same beast. I mean, you can't imagine colonisation without militarism. Mm. That's how they do it, um, through sending in armies to um, kill the people and steal the land and resources. They're still doing it. Um, And, you know... I mean, capitalism is sort of another system that's in the mix there because it's about privatising people's land. So whether it's on this continent or in West Papua or elsewhere or across Africa and Asia and the Americas, it's about we want to privatise this bit of land so we have to get rid of the human beings who at the moment inhabit the land and own it through a communal sort of traditional system of, of land management. 
Um, and how, how patriarchy mm. features here is that I think, you know, toxic masculinity is, is militarism. Like, you, you can't imagine militarism without, you know, picturing um, the man with the gun. So that version of masculinity is really hard-boiled in, um, in dominant culture. That idea that the man is weaponized, that the man is violent, um, and that his violence and his dominance is natural. Yeah. Um, and we know that that's not true. We know it from our own experience, from the many men in our lives who are gentle and altruistic and lovely. And we know it through the cross-cultural experiences we have of many, many cultures where um, where men are, are carers and lovers and, and nurturers. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that um, it's, yeah, violence and gender alike, along with capitalism, are so often naturalised and its naturalisation is really normalised in our society. There are so many things that prop it up in the media and in advertising. Um, And I think, yeah, it's a good reminder that those are actually constructed narratives. That's not how we were born. And militarisation is about aggression and control. Um, It's not about protection or peace. No, we, we like to speak of them as attack industries rather than defence industries. So, you know, you can't, <laughs> you know, a bomb is not defending anything. It is attacking something. Um, and, yeah, that's really important for us to remember that there are other ways of being, that this sort of idea of the masculine as violent and um, war as a natural state of affairs is a cultured idea. It is not... It is not our natural state. And what really gives me hope for humanity is when I'm in a blockade situation, like a sort of blockade camp or, you know, a camp, a a sort of mobilisation like Disrupt Land Forces, where people are given an opportunity to be something different Mm. um, than what mainstream culture requires of them. And, And you see people just you know, shine. You see the, the, the beauty and the altruism and the creativity and the commitment um, that they have to life and to each other um, just bubbling up. And it's, you know, you can say, well, that's because they've had years of activist cultivation, enculturation. But if you look at the way that human beings respond when there is a natural disaster, so the way communities responded in Pakistan to the floods, in Lismore to the floods, all along the eastern seaboard of Australia during the fires, the first response of people in those emergency situations was altruistic. It was let's help each other. And people immediately started doing extraordinary things to help their communities and even risking their own safety to to save each other and look after each other. So that's actually what. Mm. In, in, in our hearts. So at Disrupt Land Forces, we try to give that space and um, create, as you mentioned, a culture of radical respect. Yeah. Where, so yeah. I think um, that's something that I wanted to delve into a little bit more, um, just going back to what you said about 
uh, care, I guess I was interpreting those actions that you were talking about with the flooding responses as care. And we've really developed a deeply ingrained reliance on care to survive as a community. And if anything, that's what's natural, not <laughs> militarized harm. But on the topic of nonviolence and radical respect as an alternative to attack, um, would they seem like really important aspects for disrupt land forces? It seems like what's really kept it going. Um, what does the practice of nonviolence and radical respect actually look like on the ground during actions? And do you continue to incorporate these practices in your daily life as well? I do my best in a world where a lot of things militate against that, um, Leela. So I guess we want, like the the short the short game here is to disrupt land forces, is to let the arms dealers know that we do not support what they're doing um, and that what they're doing is harmful. The long game here is to build our strengths as activists, as community. Um, as the people who will bring the culture of the future. So that's the game, I guess, well, not the game, that's the life. <laughs> that's the culture mm-hmm. that we want to build. So it, at Disrupt Land Forces, it's it's a very diverse constituency who, who come. Um, there are a lot of um, First Nations peoples from this continent and, and other countries, um, a lot of elders, a lot of young ones, um, refugees, um, people from faith communities, you know, people who are sort of hardened atheists like myself, mm-hmm. um, and all coexisting. And to make that um, fruitful and enjoyable for people, we invite people to a culture of radical respect. And that's where you put somebody's humanity above everything else. So it, it's a really deep sort of sense of respecting another person's autonomy and freedom and creativity. Um, so it's it's allowing someone to protest in a way that doesn't feel meaningful to you or that you don't relate to. So, you know, someone might pray, someone might be naked, someone might be yelling at the police, and we're asking people to let that be okay um, and to really value the humanity of the person and their reasons for protesting in the way that they do and be curious about other people. So ask, don't tell. Mm. Be curious about, well, why why do you choose that set of tactics or um, how have you come to be where you are now or what has made you think this way? So really trying to remove us from the kind of competitive and judgmental framework that capitalism brings us up with mm. into a culture of, you know, really sort of unattached acceptance of difference um, underpinned by an, an, a love of each other's humanity. Yeah, I think uh, putting humanity first, putting a person's humanity first when we decide how to act and how to live is a really good sounding board. You know, I think it can apply to pretty much every challenge. So these are confusing times, and that's a really good reminder about how, you know, how we want our future to look and how we want our present 
time to look as well. Yeah. So part of it is is also thinking about solidarity as connectedness. Mm. So solidarity not as transactional or I give you five solidarity, you give me back five solidarity. It's it's about connectedness. I'm standing with you because we are both humans and we are connected to each other. We are not separate from each other and we are connected to this earth. We are not separate from this earth and our natural world. And that um, that's been a foundation that that is shared and a care for each other and a care for our earth um, that comes from our connectedness to it. It's not a, like, a sort of intellectual or a cognitive process. It's a really... It's a heart process. Thank you so much, Zelda, for your wise words. I've really appreciated your time. I think, yeah, it's what I needed this morning. So thank you. Um, You're so welcome, Leela. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we just heard some wisdom from Zelda Grimshaw on Disrupt Land Forces, which is happening in October. Next week. Next week. Yes, that's next week. October is next week. The 1st to the 7th in Manjin, Brisbane. Um, and I think that was, that was such a beautiful conversation, Leila. Yeah, I really, I pretty much forgot about the time because um, I just got into listening. and Yeah, and I mean, the way that, um, I mean, really coming to activism from a point of um, really deeply believing and investing in our interdependence, I think is is so crucial. And I encourage people to uh, stay tuned to 3CR and all the coverage that we're going to have on Disrupt Land Forces, but also we'll have links in the show notes to, to places where you can find out more. Um, I just wanted to let listeners know about an action that's happening today at Fed Square, and that is from 6 to 7.30 p.m., Solidarity with the people of Iran, uh, be their voice. And this is happening in um, in the wake of the death in custody of 22-year-old Iranian woman Masa Amini uh, on the 16th of September. Uh, she died in Tehran under suspicious circumstances, allegedly due to police brutality, um, which uh, occurred as the result of her not uh, properly wearing the hijab. And so, yeah, there will be an action today at Fed Square showing solidarity from 6 to 7.30 p.m. So uh, organizers are uh, calling people to get involved, uh, to stand up. You know, there have been really concerns, uh, really big concerns about Internet and media blackouts um, in Iran uh, in the wake of Masa Amini's death. And so, yeah, uh, calling people to stand in solidarity, to get involved and find other ways uh, to get involved as well. So we'll have links to that protest in our show notes as well. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. 
Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we are joined by Dr. Ruth D'Souza, a health researcher, clinician, and nursing educator at RMIT University, as well as the podcast creator of Birthing and Justice. Ruth has professional expertise in diverse areas from cultural safety, maternity, migration, tech, social inclusion, mental health, and much more. She joins us today to speak on research that was co-authored with Dr. Sukmani Karana and PhD candidate Bhavya Chitranshi about the experiences of six cisgender South Asian Australian women who gave birth during the COVID-19 pandemic. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. Um, nice to talk to you. Yes, it's wonderful to be able to catch you so early. <laughs> no, not many people do. <laughs> well, thank you very much for making the time. Um, so... Uh, With, uh, maybe we'll just jump into, we'll just jump into it. So prior to the pandemic, um, racialized women experienced barriers to healthcare and a lack of social support, which were obviously further exacerbated during the course of the pandemic, um, through, you know, various forms of isolation that we all experience. But of course, this is more acutely experienced by people who, um, you know, are going through pregnancy, who are isolated already. And with the health risks of COVID, um, I'm sure there are extra concerns. So could you please speak about some of the barriers that migrant women did face during their pregnancies and how COVID-19 worked to create further isolation? Yes, thanks. Thank you for that question. Um, it was something we were really interested in, our team, because um, we knew that for many of our communities that there are a lot of rituals, uh, specific kind of practices that relate to pregnancy uh, and birthing. And so uh, with family not being allowed to visit, there were these big kind of information and support gaps. And on top of that, um, health systems were changing the goalposts all the time. You know, they were reconfiguring, they were adapting. Um, and they kind of moved into these very kind of blunt instruments that would just make huge blanket policies rather than try and um, adapt them to particular groups. So it was kind of a big rule for everybody and then something would change again. Um, so, uh, you know, this very dynamic kind of context um, but also not having the kind of support that they might have expected. Mm. Um, and particularly because um, birthing is such a high-touch kind of area, you mm. know, it's like the, the flipped telemedicine meant that people felt like they were having to do a lot on their own uh, and figure things out. And I think those three things, the, the lack of um, information, the lack of kind of practical help that might have happened um, and face-to-face information and support, um, as well as information gets really big things for the people in our study. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we, we've had the opportunity to interview uh, other clinicians uh, across the course of the pandemic as well who've spoken to 
you know, the barriers that people have also faced to appropriate communication um, translated into, you know, resources translated into different languages and appropriate healthcare being provided in a culturally safe way. And if you, um, you know, combine this with the fact that things have been flipped into the telehealth space where people are isolated and feel like they have to navigate this on their own, I'm sure it can be really isolating. So, um, you know, what came up Across this research, I understand, is that people felt this isolation from social and cultural supports as well due to migration policies and then by reliance on online support that wasn't always culturally appropriate. So could you speak to uh, some of the specific effects that you found about this shifting of responsibilities from health services to individual mothers and their families? Yeah, well, um, as as many listeners will know, that it, it's a very joyful um time, but there's also stressful and complex um, because it raises all kinds of things about our own parenting and um, what we want to do and how we might want to do it differently. Um, And even though there's more support generally available compared to other times in our lifespan, even before the pandemic, there was kind of evidence that people need even more support than there is available. And in this kind of ecosystem, there's uh, digital technologies and apps, which I'll talk about later, and, and all kinds of platforms. Uh, but I think many of the participants in our study spoke about their expectations of, of kind of cultural practices um, around care work and support that would complement health services. Um, and this would be provided usually in a very highly gendered way by, by people who identified as women, for mothers, mothers-in-law, sisters, sisters-in-law who contribute not only in terms of their own experience, but also by physically taking care of the pregnant person and the newborn. Um, and, and the care is not just uh, around the uh, pregnant or birthing parent, but it's also around managing household work, cooking, preparing specific food items, providing massages. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's these physical forms of care and support but then, um, going back to your question, um, you know, they were missing all of that from their families. And then from health services, they're really missing the kind of tailored, specific, personal um, touch and um, tailored advice from health professionals, you know. And, and those things take time to build. You know, it takes time to build trust with your health professional. And if you're just meeting someone um, through telemedicine and you're then meeting a different person, mm. uh, the next time you have an appointment, it's kind of like um, this relationship building just doesn't happen. Mm. And so a lot, of, a lot of the people were having to kind of figure out um, information for themselves, uh, monitor themselves, and, and a lot of things that you'd expect a health professional to do. So there's just this, like you say, this transfer of responsibility to them. Um, who were also having to deal with a whole range of other complexities like missing parents, um, family, peers. Yeah, so the, the isolation was huge. Yeah, and I mean, as, as you said, um, care around uh, the process of, of pregnancy and giving birth is definitely not something that can be, you know, pieced together in an ad hoc kind of way. You kind of do need that consistency in terms of being able to have, you know, both your social supports, but also the medical supports to rely on. Um, but it does sound like online Facebook groups, apps and online platforms uh, from the mother's countries of origin and cultural backgrounds did provide some sources of support. 
so what practical emotional or informational gaps did these groups um, help to fill, and particularly at a time where, where family wasn't able to help in person with traditional practices? Yeah, that's a great question. It was, it was really interesting how useful uh, people found Facebook groups. I, I'm personally a big user of Facebook um, Facebook groups, particularly around gardening. And so, you know, I could really relate to this because, um, you know, um, th- there were different kinds of ways of engaging with these groups. So some people were really passive. They kind of didn't want to stand out and they would just search Facebook groups for particular topics, you know, like infant feeding or whatever. Um, and then other people were quite active. Um, but the thing that was really interesting was the people in our study looked for groups that would relate to a specific date of birth. So, you know, they'd, they'd find groups where people were going to give birth at, around the same time as, as them. Or they would look for groups that were specific around culture or around neighbourhood. So I think there was this really active development of a support system that occurred um, virtually that's super interesting. And then in terms of the apps, um, what I thought was really interesting was um, that, that generally the feedback, and, and um, I found this in work that I've done myself as well, um, that the platforms had really Eurocentric kind of advice. And so um, a lot of people struggled with that. And then, and then what they did was they just adapted it, you know. So they mm. um, kind of used what was useful and, um, you know, discarded the rest. But they did find that quite tricky, you know, like, uh, no, we don't do that kind of thing. You know, if, if they got um, advice from health professionals that didn't fit, they mm. just try and make it work, you know. And, um, you know, I think... Um, Incredible resourcefulness is, is really what I kind of observed in the study and in the research when I was looking at the, at, at the themes and um, you know narratives from our participants because some of them also adapted their own cultural practices. So um, you know there was one one participant who said that, but um, her family were from Singapore, so we had a lot of people who had. Um, a double migration like I've had myself, you know, mm. like I've migrated a few times. And um, this particular participant had family in Singapore and Sweden, and they'd created an, a, a sort of Google sheet which had kind of food and recipes. And, Amazing. Um, yeah, so she, she kind of had the expectation that um, she'd, she'd experience a period of confinement in a very traditional way. And so she was really disappointed when she couldn't make all the food that she wanted to make because a lot of things were labor intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but she gave everything a red hot go, you know what I mean? And then there was another participant who um, decided that she didn't want to shave her um, baby's head, uh, which was uh, a tradition that she'd inherited. And another participant who decided that they did want to buy um clothes and, and items for the baby nursery, um, mm-hmm. but they'd put them in a separate room. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're just all these traditions that were adapted and kind of played with and experimented with, you know. Uh, and I think um, I, I'd be really curious about following up our participants and just sort of seeing how they reflect on, on that whole period because um, it sort of feels in some ways that it was, a long time ago, but at the same time, it's not, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think I might collapse a couple of questions into one here uh, just to briefly ask how, um, you know, how participants found having to advocate for themselves in a Eurocentric medical system. And, you know, given what you know from their experiences, um, what do you recommend health services do differently for culturally appropriate and integrated care? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's such a, it's such a good question because um, uh, Priya, I've been working in the since the 90s when I worked on a um, postnatal ward. And it's kind of like the, there were so many clashes back then and I still hear about those mm. clashes and feeling really unsafe. So I think, um, you know, the, the issue of safety and tackling racism and uh, birthing services is a, <laughs> is a long-term project. Mm-hmm. But I think in the, I think in the short term, really... Um, I think not having such, not seeing people as vectors of contagion. So the the ways in which um, people were treated Mm -hmm. was that all partners were potentially contagious. So, you know, you could only have one visitor. Mm -hmm. Um, And and really it's it's hospitals which are more likely to be sites of contagion and viral shedding. But it was kind of like people were seen as contaminating. So I think... The policies that restricted visitor numbers to one really unfairly disadvantaged um, migrant parents with small children, especially if they didn't have any extended family members or resources for childcare during the pandemic. So I think, you know, having more of a harm reduction kind of um, perspective and flexible policies instead of, you know, blanket bans or mm-hmm. abstinence kind of approaches in health services. Um you know, that really support people's circumstances, you know. Um, and, and then I also think, you know, there's potential also to better integrate um, digital ecosystems so so that um, they're non-commercial because all these apps are commercial, right, mm-hmm. uh, in general. But something that um, the NHS has uh, that can be really responsive to the range of lived experiences of culturally diverse families that connects say, hospitals or health services with apps, um, you know, in-language information services via phone helpline, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, better systems integration between services and smartphone, enable services relating to pregnancy and parenting support. Yeah. Um, I think active outreach to provide access to perinatal mental health services because I suspect also that that isolation has taken a toll on people. No, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe some more flexible systems for when childcare is not available, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I think so much of what you're speaking to uh, talks about, I mean, I, I guess refers to the sort of compounding issues of, um, you know, not valuing care work in a colonial capitalist system in the first place, but then also not recognizing those additional um, cultural nuances. Look, Ruth, thank you so much for speaking to us about this. We're going to chuck some links in our show notes to your podcast and to your research. Um, I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much for having me, Priya, and keep up the great work. Awesome. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who's a health researcher, clinician, and nursing educator at RMIT University and the podcast creator of Birthing and Justice, who spoke with us about co-authored research on the experiences of six cisgender South Asian Australian women who gave birth during the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM.
From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralized, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to land forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter. would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to three cr.org.au and get in touch. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Gary Foley, who's speaking with us about the upcoming national cinema release of the fully restored documentary Ningla Ana, the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, which celebrated its 50th year of continued occupation and resistance this year. Good morning, Gary. How's it going? Good morning. Good. Um, maybe we'll just jump straight into it. So... This year is the 50th anniversary, obviously, of the establishment of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Um, and I was hoping that you could start off by giving us a bit of an insight into what it was like to be there in 1972 at the height of the land rights movement. Um, those were exciting times. I mean, you know, it was coming off the back of extensive decolonisation of many nations in Africa, Asia and the Pacific. Um, there was a massive um, campaign against the Vietnam War. It was the beginnings of the women's and gay movements or the, the sort of resurgence of those. Um, and uh, Aboriginal land rights was um, a major political issue. And... Um, you know, so they were dynamic and exciting times, both within Australia and internationally. Mm. Uh, so it was a great time to be alive. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, you know, so dynamic seeing, um, you know, from from the from the Redfern Black Power movement, seeing the medical services come up, the legal services, and this um, this huge amount of momentum, then leading into you know the the massive mobilization in '88. Um, I'm wondering 
How have you seen the political landscape change in this country since 1972 when it comes to Aboriginal land rights and sovereignty? And why is political education so important? Well, I mean, it's important. Uh, I mean, if, if Australians are going to participate in some shonky referendum in the near future, then it would seem important that they have some sense of what the history has been. The long trail of broken promises by government, the destruction of the land rights movement by the Hawke government, um, the corruption that uh, pervades Aboriginal affairs today, all of these sort of things, um, uh, you know, can be understood if, if you have a basic understanding of history. I teach that history in three weeks to, you know, 60 students at a time. Mm. And they can understand when I've finished with them. But the majority of Australians have got no inkling of the history, the long history of uh, the Aboriginal resistance, beginning virtually from the day Captain Cook set foot on this shore and still alive and living to this day in the form of the young activists from war. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, I was thinking about your your speech at the Abolish the Monarchy rally, um, where I think you know you, you spoke to to the fact that there has been, um, you know, the, the the state continues to to grind away at trying to, you know, stamp out resistance and um, you know subvert these processes, but there is this really exciting. Um, new generation of young activists who are really taking the movement forward. So um, I was wondering if, if you could and speak to that no, as well. It's no accident that many of this new generation are in fact literally the grandchildren of some of the activists from the late 60s and early 70s, you know. Um, that's one of the things I find so ad- admirable about them and, and they're pulling bigger crowds on invasion day than we managed to pull at the heyday of the black power movement so they're doing pretty good um Mm -hmm. as far as i can see yeah and i mean they're the ones that have had this lifetime of political education steeped in the movement and growing up in it um indeed and and among those who are the new generation is uh senator lydia thorpe who's getting a bit of a kicking in the age at the moment uh, unwarrantedly, and, uh, you know, there seems to be a concerted effort to uh, challenge the credibility of Lydia Thorpe. And yet Lydia Thorpe, in my mind, um, you know, I've known her since before she was born. Um, and she, I know her background. I know that she comes from a strong uh, political lineage of matriarchs, brilliant matriarchs, um, and she's got more political knowledge in her little finger than half of them other black uh, uh, parliamentarians in Canberra got, you know, despite some of them having bigger names, you know, big name, no blankets. Yeah, I mean, she is definitely bringing, um, you know, bringing a real activist commitment into into Parliament, and I think that's not comfortable for, for some of the status well, quo. I mean, I mean, you know, she she's in there disrupting and challenging the status quo, mm. you know, and if you're going to go into the 
go into Parliament, then, then that's the thing to do. I mm. mean, otherwise you just become, uh, you, know, one of, you know, one of the other mediocrities that infest the place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess uh, I was wondering if you could tell us, um, in view of sort of wrapping up, uh, what it means to you that the documentary has been restored and what you hope people get out of being able to watch the documentary when, it, when it's screening um, over the next few weeks. Well, you know, I took my hat to Hayden Keenan, who mounted a uh, GoFundMe campaign and raised enough money to have the film remastered. And, and it's, uh, I've said in other places, it's magical what they can do these days because this new digitally remastered version is actually better visual quality than the original 16mm film that I saw 50 years ago. Mm. And I mean, you know, it's a, and it's appropriate that these screenings are happening because this is also the 50th anniversary of that film, and and that's a really significant historical document. You know, it's the only uh, stuff that was shot from within and around the Black Power movement in Redfern, and the only reason that it exists is because of the courage of two Italian filmmakers, Alessandro and Fabio Cavadini who, you know, had the respect to walk into Redfern when not a lot of white Australian filmmakers had come near the place. Mm. And they asked us for permission to film in our midst. And because they'd paid us that simple respect, we said yes. And the result is the film that's on at the Nova um, tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Get in and book your tickets fast. Yeah, I hear it's already sold out on, on tomorrow night. There's another screening on Sunday night with a panel with me and Rachel Mather, Mazza, whose father features in the film, and mm. I think she might have been in there as a little child. Yeah, incredible. I mean, we'll have all of the information about how to book um, tickets in our show notes as well. Um, but thank you so much for making the time to, to chat with us about it this morning. And I also encourage people to, to listen back to the chat that Gary had with Robbie Thorpe yesterday. So, Gary, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. No worries. Always happy to talk to 3CR. Always a pleasure to have you on. And that was Professor Gary Foley, who joined us to speak about the upcoming national cinema release of the fully restored documentary Ningla Anna. Ningla Anna is the inside story of the Aboriginal Ten Embassy, which celebrated its 50th year of continued op- occupation and resistance this year. And the, um, the documentary is the only film shot inside the embassy up close and personal with the people who established it. And as Gary mentioned, the film is screening at Cinema Nova in Carlton this coming Friday, although that, I believe, is sold out. Saturday, the 1st of October, and Sunday, the 2nd of October. Um, there's going to be a special panel tomorrow with Professor Gary Foley, Lydia Thorpe, and Tony Birch. And then on Sunday, Gary's going to be joined by Rula Kelly Mansell and Rachel Maza, I believe both of whom each had a parent that was uh, at the original tent embassy. So... Uh, really encourage folks to get along to that. We'll have information in the show notes. But I think that is just about all we have time for today on Thursday Breakfast. Maybe we can very quickly let folks know what we listen to. So first up, we heard Izzy Brown speaking at the NARM Truth Not War rally on the 18th of September. And then Zelda joined us to speak about Disrupt Land Force's upcoming action responding to the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere, held this October in Mianjin. 
Um, yeah, and we'll have information about how to attend in our show notes and also to tune in. Um, and then after that, we were joined by Dr. Ruth D'Souza, who spoke with us about the experiences of six cisgender South Asian Australian women who gave birth during the COVID-19 pandemic and their experiences of navigating that um, without immediate family support. Um, and finally, we were joined by Professor Gary Foley, which you just heard. So uh, we'll catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 a.m.